This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow and Director of Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And today I'm joined by Dr. Heidi Larson, Founding Director of the Vaccine Confidence Project and Professor of Anthropology, Risk and Decision Science at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Over the course of her professional career, Heidi has focused on the social and political factors that shape vaccine demand and vaccine acceptance, including the circulation of rumors, misinformation, and disinformation about vaccines, and rumors about the motives of the companies that make them and the people who deliver them. She's the author of the book, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumors Start and Why They Don't Go Away, which came out in 2020, and she has been exceptionally busy over the past two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, including serving as co-chair of the CSIS London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine high-level panel on vaccine confidence and misinformation, which made a point of really linking vaccine uptake and security issues in its 2021 report, Why Vaccine Confidence Matters to National Security. So today we'll discuss some of the trends that Heidi was seeing regarding vaccine confidence prior to COVID-19, how rumors and stories about vaccines and how trust in science, government, and expertise have changed or evolved during the pandemic, and some of the steps that she thinks policymakers can take now to help the public be better prepared for the uncertainties, anxieties, and challenges of health crises now and in the future. So Heidi, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thanks so much. Now, you started the Vaccine Confidence Project about a decade ago as a way to assess people's attitudes regarding vaccines, including how information about vaccines circulate, whether in person or online, and the ways in which messages about vaccines resonate with different social groups. Now, in late 2020, six or so months into the pandemic, but before COVID vaccines had become available, you published Stuck, to really share some of these findings with the broad audience, kind of beyond the academic and intergovernmental organization sector. And in it, you shared some recommendations for how to engage with people who are vaccine hesitant as well. So I wanted to ask you to kind of discuss what the main messages from Stuck are and whether kind of now two years, two years plus into the pandemic and with COVID-19 vaccines widely available, If you feel the same approach to strengthening vaccine confidence still holds, or are we kind of in a new era that requires new tools and refined approaches? Thanks very much. One of the main points of Stuck and one of the findings in our 10, 15 years of research on this, trying to understand what was driving the public questioning around vaccines in different countries, I just saw this growing polarization in the media and how people were looked at as either being 
for or against vaccine. You're pro or you're anti. And I was very concerned about this group in the middle who were questioning and just hesitating about vaccine. But a lot of them had very genuine questions and concerns and not with all good intention to vaccinate, but just wanted more information. I felt like they were being pushed out and that we needed more empathy and listening. So I think one of the big messages was, one, there's no guilty party in terms of this pro-anti division that actually everybody can do a bit better in trying to have a conversation about things they may not agree about, but to try to depolarize what was looking like an increasingly polarized landscape around vaccines. I still think that we need to have empathy and listen, particularly to listen to people's concerns before we judge them. I don't think it's a context where we should be judging people. I think we need to understand what's driving it. Sometimes there's something you can do about it. Sometimes it's a logistical issue. Sometimes it's not having the right information about something. Sometimes it's more ideological, which is challenging, but at least we need to understand where they're coming from. Right now, and what we've seen with COVID has exacerbated the polarization. To be honest, I would have thought that COVID would have brought us together more (laughs) rather than apart. But we see across the social media landscape, certainly, that there used to be a number of different networks of people who talk about vaccines, and some of them mixed it up with other grievances and they bundled it together. But it was largely around children's vaccines. That was the prominent issue in questioning. Some of it was more on the adolescent vaccines with HPV. That was another group. But what's happened with COVID, because vaccines with COVID is for everybody, the conversations around vaccine, good and bad, have flooded social networks uh, in person or online. And I think that we do need different strategies now not to abandon the listening and the empathy, but this is different. One thing that we really tried to do with the high-level panel on vaccine confidence and misinformation was to think about kind of what is different with the COVID-19 vaccines. And we started thinking about some of those before the vaccines had really even been introduced. But we brought together experts from the health, information, and communication sectors, from the security, national security expertise, and homeland security, and others, as well as people who had you know, deep expertise in the issues related to cybersecurity and some of the challenges around artificial intelligence and that kind of thing. Our final report you know, was why vaccine confidence matters for national security. But I wanted to ask you, have you always seen vaccine confidence as linked to security questions? Or is this something that you've seen become more important with this polarization and the acceleration of the dissemination of information about vaccines in the context of social media and the pandemic? A second question is, if we do look at vaccine confidence through the lens of national security, what does it change in terms of the kinds of tools or approaches that we need to be using? Well, I think in terms of the question of seeing the link between vaccine confidence and security, I have to say vaccination for a long time, I think we've looked at, at least in a global health context, 
vaccination as a type of health security, just in terms of mitigating even things like measles epidemics and polio and from a health security point of view. But in terms of broader security, in terms of safety, in terms of fairness, but particularly safety, I think that's a new realm of security to the point of weaponized anti-vaccine type networks, as they've been coined as weaponized that are actually trying to destabilize societies. And that's a whole other level. And one of the things we've seen in COVID are these quite aggressive protests that have erupted. I should put this in the context of the fact that it's stunning with vaccines that we didn't even have two years ago, that tens of millions of people around the world have been vaccinated. That's a lot of vaccines, and it's an amazing feat. On the other hand, within that, it hasn't been totally fair in terms of global equity where those vaccines have gone and the terms of that vaccination, the mandates, the restrictions, the context of the delivery has really created anger among some, resent. Some have gotten their vaccine but aren't happy about it. They got it because they wanted the ability to go to the cafe or the rock concert or to work depending on the reasons. So I do think that the nature of the security threat has changed from one of not just weakened society, but destabilized. And there's a different level of aggression that we've seen towards even scientists, which is a real worry. So the nature of the security issues, I think, have changed. You mentioned some of these much more aggressive protests. And, you know, we've seen violence in a number of different cities in Europe, the truck blockade in Canada a few weeks ago, this freedom convoy that was headed to Washington, D.C., and all these other protests, particularly around mandates. And I would maybe ask you to say a little bit more about what it is about mandates that's so provocative for so many people. But also, you know, what we've seen in the European context and here in North America is people attaching terms like freedom, liberty, individual choice in conjunction with the protests and the frustration with the mandates. And you know, I just wanted to ask if this linkage between the protests and this broader agenda for individual liberties that we've seen in the political sphere, does that make the issue of vaccine confidence or I guess hesitancy more challenging to counter or address? Does it make a difference that they've really become so closely attached to these terms, freedom, liberty? All good questions. Just going back to your question on the mandates, uh, what is it about mandates? I mean, if we look back to the 1800s around the smallpox vaccine, people had their questions about the vaccine and the concern about safety. But the thing that turned a few people concerned about whether this was okay and safe and was this natural turned into organized protests only when the government, and this was in the UK, imposed a compulsory vaccination. In fact, the first anti-vaccination league was actually the anti-compulsory vaccination league. And that really speaks to what the nature of the grievance was, which was the compulsion more than the vaccine. And I think we see the same thing today. It's this issue of having a choice freedom of choice. But, you know, as you also mentioned, it's about individual liberties. 
On the other hand, if everyone gets vaccinated, it allows other people liberties. So I think this growing framing among the vaccine critics under this mantra of freedom and liberty and even health freedom and medical freedoms so that you can have your own choice It really comes down to a question of my freedom or your freedom. And your freedoms, when they start to impose on others, I worked for years in the UN on on a lot of rights issues. And I remember there was this, you know, you have your rights, but you also have your responsibilities. And you have your rights until your rights start to hurt others, harm others. And I think we're kind of in that space now. But As there have been more and more restrictions on social media, on some of these spaces, and they've been repressed, the language of the critics, the the language of people questioning, they've changed it in a way to escape some of the fact-checking, the restrictions, because you can't argue with freedom. So they've picked kind of an untouchable framing of this, which makes it challenging. But indeed, it's a question of whose freedoms. So the other issue you mentioned before was the erosion of trust in science and scientists. And on the one hand, this is a period when scientific breakthroughs have really brought us these vaccines in record time and enabled there to be many different options available in, in different contexts. And yet we've seen individual scientists and sort of the idea, particularly of government science, to have become subject to protests and threats of violence against individual scientists and against the idea of the enterprise. And I just wanted to ask if you have a sense of what's driving that uncertainty or lack of belief in the scientific enterprise at this point, if, if you will, if it's just the kind of the science of vaccines or if this is a broader kind of disintegration of confidence in the concept of expertise that this pandemic has really accentuated. I think one of the challenges that has happened in COVID is how the strength of the voice of science in terms of policies. And I think a different relationship with science has come up because the science has said X and that informs policies, which in many cases, those policies have led to restrictions on people. So people resent in a kind of strange twist the science because they blame the science for having informed and driven what has been politically interpreted or policy-wise as, okay, well, if that's the case, Mr. Scientist, we need to do these restrictions, these mandates. Otherwise, your models are showing us we'll have explosive outbreaks or whatever. So that's where I think this different relationship with science is emerging. And there are new levels of aggression to scientists because some people are blaming them for the restrictions they have to suffer, as many people feel it. That's a new dynamic that is concerning, and I think we have to think about how to heal that. So I want to ask you to think about before the pandemic a little bit. So back in 2018 and 2019, kind of thinking about the measles outbreaks that were part of what led the World Health Organization to identify vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health in 2019, You know, it seemed like, at least there were a number of people kind of arguing that 
the lack of popular confidence in vaccines was largely kind of a high-income developed country problem, at least in terms of complacency and not having seen dangerous infectious diseases in a generation or more, or an issue for populations within those contexts that favored kind of a more natural approach to disease prevention or over-pharmaceutical interventions. Not to say that it wasn't viewed as a challenge in, in other regions, but I think a lot of times, much of the discussion really was focused on those groups in higher income countries. But under COVID, particularly as the vaccine rollout has intensified and supply in the low and lower middle income countries, which was very low for much of the first year, but has begun to improve in the last quarter or so, we're seeing in many contexts low levels of demand for the vaccines, even when they are available. Do you see this? Is this surprising? to you at all? And would you attribute it to mistrust of the vaccines? Or is it too little, too late? Or is it lack of confidence in the government or mistrust of products from the global north? Is this a new phenomenon? And what might it mean for the larger routine immunizations and and other programs in the future? Well, I think that the low demand for the vaccines that are finally arriving much later than they were expected to arrive It is a bit about a little too late, but there's other factors in there. When governments are told they're going to get a certain amount of vaccines and they're not coming and then they're not coming and they're not coming, as a government in a poor country that has a lot of demands on them, are they going to choose to invest in the preparedness needed to get ready to deploy all these vaccines when they're not coming? Also, it creates an expectation in the public, and they don't want to disappoint their publics. So in the meanwhile, they've moved on with doing a lot of other things, and then the vaccine starts coming because that's the convenient time that they've been come available. And then we say, well, why don't they want them? I think that, one, the perceived threat of the virus has waned a bit in some settings. In other settings, There's been a lot of denialism about COVID even being real or being imported or there's any various conspiracies. But I think the bottom line is that the timing, the fact that they're late, the fact that a number of these shipments had very short expiry dates and didn't give adequate time for people to get up and running. It's not like they were all ready and waiting for the magic day where they arrived. They've had to deploy their human resources in other ways in the meanwhile. So I think it's been a mix of bad timing, the fact that they've come with short dates. Also, in the meanwhile, there's been more news about different side effects and adverse events. In our global confidence monitoring, particularly in Africa, there was pretty high willingness and optimism around the COVID vaccines in late 2020. That has progressively declined over the last year. One, while they weren't seeing the vaccines, but hearing about them. And in Europe, a number of places halted around the AstraZeneca vaccine with those early signals of an issue. And so they hear that. And then I think that Between some of those bits and pieces and the long time it took to get there, and in the meanwhile, the threat feeling like it's not as bad as actually, it actually was pretty bad, but the vaccines weren't there when it was bad. I think they've all kind of converged. I don't think it's been great for trust relationships moving forward. 
I think other things have also undermined the trust. I mean, certainly some of these policies for travel where people from some countries who've gotten the vaccines that were delivered through the global system, but they're just not good enough for traveling to some of these higher income countries, that's been a problem because then you say, if it's not good enough, why are you giving them to us if you're not going to let us travel with them? I think we have some trust repairing to do. So this is like when uh, people have received the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, and then AstraZeneca or the Chinese vaccine or different vaccines, the one made in India, which is the production of what is the equivalent of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But yeah, and that's not being accepted for travel to some countries. And there's a bit of doublespeak there that is not particularly great for trust building. So the... World Health Organization, UNICEF, national immunization coverage data last July, I guess in 2021, showed that there had been dips in coverage with the diphtheria tetanus pertussis, the three doses of that vaccine, and some of the measles-containing vaccines and others. And the data had shown that in 2020, there had been a big dip in the early part of the year as countries closed down and really lockdowns went into effect. But then things had improved somewhat at the end of that year. So we'll have to look this year in July of 2022 to kind of see how things might have recovered in 2021. Do you have a sense of whether this mistrust around the COVID vaccines is moving over into feelings about routine immunizations? Has the lockdowns and scarcity of some of those immunization programs in that early part of COVID when things were stopped for a period of time, has that had a longer term effect on confidence around the routine immunizations more generally? Well, we saw in our confidence monitoring and even in our quite recent ones that Indeed, not only has there been a drop in confidence around some of the COVID vaccines, but also around vaccines in general. Now, what we don't know is how much of that is a drop in confidence in the system because they weren't able to get a lot of the childhood vaccines because of, you know, lockdown and the health system being totally focused on COVID at the expense of some of these basic health immunization programs. Right now, we're on a learning curve, (laughs) but we're paying a lot of attention to looking at what the knock-on effect is. What's been interesting in terms of, as you say, the immediate drop was when COVID first hit, and there was a lot of, we really didn't know how bad it was going to be or how long it was going to be. And there was a, a harder lockdowns in the very beginning. And it was during that time that we had such a dramatic drop in, in childhood immunization. But as you say, in 2021, it is starting to come back, but not everywhere. And that's where we need to pay attention to, well, why is it that certain countries are not getting back on their feet? Maybe they were hit harder with COVID. Maybe the system was more worn. But I think it's going to be important to pay close attention to see where are people not recovering so quickly. The last thing we need now is another major measles outbreak, for instance. And I say measles because it is the one that needs the highest vaccination rate and is the first to show outbreaks of the various childhood or vaccines in general. So I think we need to pay close attention to that. And I think we are seeing outbreaks in some of the more fragile states, the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa as well. So, So we'll see what the 2022 report shows. As we look ahead to a new phase of the pandemic, whether that's now or in the future, 
there will invariably be people who just want to move on and forget, just say, we've, we've done this, we just want to move on and think about other things. And certainly there's no shortage of other geopolitical issues to occupy the minds of decision makers and people who work on policy. But at the same time, you know, others will be calling for capturing lessons learned and urge that we prepare now for future health crises and unexpected outbreaks. Now, your work has really highlighted how unprepared so many societies were for the kinds of protective health measures that have had to be implemented. You were talking earlier about the frustration that so many people have felt, not only over vaccines, but masks and lockdowns and social distancing. You've also talked about the connection between people's experience of crisis and their lack of trust in whether in local or, or national government. And the circulation of misinformation and and disinformation, really politicization of the responses in so many ways. As you think about preparedness for future outbreaks, what steps should governments or could governments and the international community more broadly be taking to help people prepare for the uncertainties, the anxieties and, and the crises of the future, whether health crises or larger you know, kinds of global situations? Are there steps that can be done to build trust and restore confidence in a way that will help people navigate those challenges? and be prepared for them in the longer term? Well, I think one of the most immediate things we need to do is rebuild the systems. I mean, the health systems have been so worn, so stressed, that people have a lot of very basic needs that have not been met during this COVID time. A lot of routine treatments, some people who needed their cancer treatments, for instance, chronic illnesses, other acute illnesses just haven't gotten the attention they need. And in terms of childhood vaccination, and I think by really paying extra attention to what people's current needs are beyond COVID are going to be an important way to start rebuilding trust, but also rebuilding the systems. I think it's one of our most important parts of preparedness is to get the system back on its feet. And I think by helping address what people feel like they need, and they feel like you care more than just trying to get the COVID jab in the arm, as they say, and that maybe actually the system does care about my other needs, that's going to be an important trust asset. So not only restoring services that may have been disrupted, but really taking steps to ensure continuity of those services in future outbreaks, as well as the kind of preparedness for unknown diseases that we may encounter. Well, Heidi Larson, director of the Vaccine Confidence Project, co-chair of the CSIS London School High-Level Panel on Vaccine Confidence and Misinformation. Thank you very much for talking with me today and for sharing your insights regarding vaccines, trust, and security in the current pandemic context and for future crises as well. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 